Welcome to the Bunmi Chronicles podcast. This is Randy Kim, your host and producer of this podcast. For this week's episode, Christina Tendela joins me as my guest for the season three's theme, Where Do We Stand? Christina is a queer Filipino OAX American community organizer in Chicago and current executive director of AFIRE, known as the Alliance of Filipino Immigrant Rights and Empowerment. Christina and I go back several years now when we were both involved in Asian American community organizing in Chicago. I got to sit down and talk with her about her commitment to this work. She discusses what led to her community organizing and her role with a fire, particularly with elders and care workers affected by COVID-19. She talks about the challenges in having difficult conversations with the Filipino OAX API community on anti-Black racism and colorism, and the critical need to involve her community on key issues for this upcoming election. Check out this episode to learn more about Christina's work. Special thanks to my sponsor, Lawrence and Argyle, a Vietnam-American-owned merchandise line representing immigrant empowerment. Get yourself a pin, hoodie, or t-shirt and show off your immigrant pride. Visit them at www.lawrenceandargyle.com or on Instagram at lawrenceandargyle or on their Facebook page. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Randy, and I am here today with Christina Tendela, who has been a good friend of mine. We go back since 2012, I believe. So that is about eight years now. It's kind of hard to fathom that we've known each other for this long. And yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. It's in a a good way. It's in a good way. But it's just like, darn, it's like how much we have you know, been through in our journey. And so to give you a quick context, 2012, I came back from living in Korea for the past three years. I had lived in the Chicagoland suburbs prior to that. So when I came back in 2012, I had worked for an organization called the Korean American Resource and Cultural Center, which was known as KRCC, now known as the HANA Center. And I was doing immigrant rights organizing work at that time. And coming back to the Chicago area, I completely found a new community. And through this community were a number of Asian American or Asian Pacific Islander folks involved in community organizing. And in that time, it was so life-changing for me. It was affirming to be in spaces where I can feel accepted about my queer identity. I Mm -hmm. felt so, um so accepted by my what i thought was my otherness you know growing up in wetland suburbia for the majority of my life and to find community members who were uh, going through similar processes like i was so christina you were definitely one of those folks that i ran into uh through that experience uh, uh with me being a former immigrant rights organizer and you at that time worked as a community organizer for a fire which is known as the alliance of filipino for immigrant rights and empowerment in the chicago north side and now you are the executive director as of last fall so congratulations on being the executive director and i wanted to ask you um before i 
stuff. And uh, you've also done community organizing work in the South Side, and you had worked with Asians American Advancing Justice in Chicago. You had served with NAPOF, which is the National Asian Pacific American Women's Forum, and then with I2I, which is Invisible to Invincible LGBTQQIA, LGBTQQIA Asian Pacific Islander group. So, uh, so I want to ask you, so how are you feeling right now in your current role with a fire and how are you doing overall in terms of the work that you've been doing in response to COVID-19? I think we'll talk more about it, but just in general right now, how are you currently doing in your work as an executive director? Wow, thank you so much for the introduction. <laughs> um, I, I <laughs> take your time. <laughs> introduce myself, but you know, okay. So, <laughs> first of all, yes, Christina or, or Chris, she and they, um, we have known each other for eight years. Oh my yeah. goodness. Um, you know, before I start to answer, even answer that question, I just. I want to say um, I, <laughs> I, I'm just really moved by um, even just thinking about being in community with you, Randy, and literally you're about to make me cry in like uh, before I even talk. <laughs> I make people um, cry in some of my episodes. I'm not going to lie to you, but, you, but you would be the first. You would be the I first that would cry in the first minute. In the first minute. <laughs> um, yeah, I think... Uh, and also, I think I'm also really value your friendship um, because I feel like we have been in a lot of different spaces together um, that have really shaped my um, uh, my place in community, my worldview. Um, and I think one of yeah, one of the things that was kind of hitting me with what you were saying was um, this piece around the part of our identity where you know often made maybe. Uh, was a part of identity that made us feel um, ostracized or mm -hmm. on the outside of community, um, particularly I think around um, queerness or you know and and um, being a part of the um, you know queer and trans or API community. Um, and um, I think for you and and for some reason all the like the like API organizers like all of us are queer. <laughs> Yeah. Or a lot of us are, not so generalized, but like, I don't know, <laughs> fight me. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure that's like a pretty I common trend. <laughs> I think, I think like I've noticed in the queer trans community, especially in the API, it, it always feels like there's nothing for us to lose, you know? Like right. When you get so used to being ostracized, it's like, you know what, we've got to defend ourselves. This is survival. This is right. like, how long can you take of being, uh, going through all these microaggressions to dealing with violent aggressions. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that sometimes, or a lot of our work gets inspired by our call to action and mm -hmm. the fact that we struggle uh, when we're not you know, being heard and we're not being accepted into many spaces, even in queer trans spaces that are, um, that are very white centered and, mm -hmm. and the, and the and the uh, and the issues that uh, a lot of cis white gay folks have in those spaces that you see as a normalized narrative, uh, it doesn't fit into our world because our experiences are so 
layered and conflicting and there's so much uh, issues with the dynamics of our family and, and also how our society and also how our community members view career trans issues. So I think it's such a interesting journey of what organizing has done and also what that has led our community folks to do and to pursue. So um, I was very curious to know what actually led you to get in community organizing because a lot of the folks that I knew there's always a story. There's always some um, incident or situation that we experienced, whether it's in our childhood or in college or with our family members that really kind of shaped up our um, motivation and our desire to, uh, to be committed to this level of work. Sure, sure. Um, well, I guess to, you know, even just to answer um, the first question or how I'm doing, I think it, it is connected to this other piece around why I started organizing. And so I think I've felt um, it's been a, obviously a really challenging time. And, um, but I think what has grounded me in um, trying to navigate how to connect and heal and fight with um, alongside our communities was to remember why I'm doing this work and basically the love for community. Um, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know if I could speak to one, one moment um, around why I started organizing, but definitely as a young person connected to um, being the child of uh, Philippine immigrants and growing up uh, growing up queer um, and feeling sort of on the outside of community um, I definitely there were definitely moments where I felt connected to uh, the the Filipino OAX community and then other times where I felt on the outside um, and then also recognizing the ways that um, like other communities, particularly white communities or institutions, were, um, were treating my, me or my family. Um, and I think kind of recognizing those moments really stirred something up inside me. Um, and I think it wasn't, it wasn't until, especially when I was in high school, where I had a, um, a high school teacher who was Filipino American, and he really talked about his own struggle um, of wanting to be white, and mm. then um, and then and and then kind of um, recognizing, oh, what does it actually mean to be Filipino American? And a part of that was recognizing um, not just well, definitely recognizing our culture and traditions, but also the history. And so a part of that history is the history of our oppression and then how those things were showing up in, mm. uh, still showing up in uh, my life, right? And, mm. and so I think um, having that space to do storytelling and to articulate my own experience um, was, was kind of all these culminating moments of me um, recognizing this um, this hunger to figure out how to change my own conditions and change the conditions of my own community. Um, and I think before I got into um, issue organizing and trying to work with grassroots communities to change laws or policies, 
um, I was doing cultural work. And so a lot of that looked like um, telling the stories um, of, our, of our communities and particularly through visual and performance art. Um, and so I'll just name, I remember as a high school student, I really was into Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> Same, I love Rage Against the Machine. I was supposed to see them back in May and oh obviously COVID, especially COVID, unfortunately, you know, uh, wiped that plan off, but, but yeah. So I think being inspired by artists who were, you know, politicizing their own experience and connecting it with these systems, um, that was inspiring to me. So I did a lot of like spoken word and like um, skits and plays as a young person trying to make sense of um, cultural, um, my cultural identity and history and, and kind of connecting the past with the present and also a vision for um, the future. Uh, and so I think that, that, that was kind of my trajectory, being involved in more like cultural work and um, you know theater. Actually, that was my first my first job. One of my first jobs in Chicago was working in a community theater called Circa Pintig. Um, mm. And and then that and then after that, I sort of got connected. Circa Pintig was always um, sister organizations with a fire Chicago. Um, and and so I think being in Chicago, I never finished college in in Virginia. And the mm. idea was that I would maybe try to go to college here in Chicago when I moved here um, over 10 years ago. But it really like the Chicago organizing scene became my university and um, campus really and meeting all of these incredible organizers and activists and, wow. and cultural workers. Um, and so I really owe it to this community, um, including the, the queer and trans API community, including people who uh, we're doing education organizing, teachers for social justice, um, pe people who are doing immigrant rights, um, and and also environmental justice. It, you know, I really had um, the the honor of working with people across the city um, from different backgrounds, ethnicities, um, you know, just in different sectors. And so I'm just I'm so uh, honored and lucky in, in that sense. Mm. Thank you for sharing uh, your journey in this. And also, I think it's worth noting that when you have a teacher who's Filipino growing up in high school, there's something so powerful in having an API person as a teacher because like growing up, I did not have any teachers who were Asian. And I don't know if I, I don't think I actually had one until I don't know if I even had one in college, to be quite honest with you. I have to think about that for a moment because, because you know, for a long time growing up in, in a white suburb, not having the exposure or seeing that your own culture does not feel normal to a lot of folks, you try to hide those parts of your identity mm. uh, away from uh, white kids, away from the community that you had to grow up in. Um, but I think that, like looking back, gosh, had I had that experience earlier, it would have definitely made a difference in, in uh, how I felt about myself as a person and not feel so othered. And, and I'm glad that you have a teacher that really um, made it easier for you to accept your cultural identity, your background, to normalize it, mm -hmm. and that there's so much that 
we can do to uh, uplift that narrative, to uplift these narratives, to uplift this, um, the history and, uh, and the unpleasant history that comes along with uh, our, our background, right? So I think it's very important to have that. Are you still in touch with that? Are you still in touch with your teacher? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and I consider um, this person um, I'm, I'm a friend and mentor, you know, and I think, um, and, and, um, we've, we've known each other for, I guess, since I was 15. Wow. <laughs> and, um, um, I'll give my age. <laughs> I'm 34. <laughs> oh, I'm a few years older than that now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, it's been, um, really incredible to know, um, and I'm even just thinking knowing you for, almost 10 years and just yeah. seeing us all grow together and kind of um, shift in our, in our, in maybe in our roles in the movement. I'm surprised we haven't aged too badly considering all <laughs> of the work that's involved with right, right. community, community <laughs> type of organizing, time. advocacy, what have you. I mean, some of that work can really age your heart, yeah. but at the same time, it's like, I think we're doing okay so far um so I'm far like, so I'm not gonna look better with my skin look if i wasn't organized <laughs> <laughs> i know it's like yeah and i was gonna say were your parents supportive of you doing in, uh, community organizing because i know you had stories about <laughs> your father but i'm very curious to know <laughs> because when you're telling your family members especially when you're going into college that hey i really think i should go into community organizing i feel like i really need to go into helping my community and I know like for a lot of yeah. Asian families that push on obviously the popular fields that I really should not have to repeat uh, once again um, you know what they are but, but to go into fields that do not are not seen as financially um, stable it, it is very hard to have these conversations when our families have come into the U.S. Mm -hmm. as refugees, immigrants, um, escaping from uh, state-sanctioned violence and genocide and poverty and, mm -hmm. and what have you. So to have these conversations must have been really difficult, but I was very curious about how your family reacted when you became involved in mm -hmm. community activism. Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, you know, I guess you can imagine it was, it was a tough time, um, because also I'll, I'll share when I struggled a lot because there wasn't a blueprint of, of like the trajectory of becoming an organizer. Mm -hmm. No one goes to school to be like, I'm going to go to school for this, this, and this in order to become an organizer. It happens. I've never heard anybody say right. that. So, um, so there's no blueprint in general. And then secondly, um, I think, you know, I was on this journey to figure out, okay, what is my, what is something um, that I want to do uh, as in my career? How do I want to spend my time in my life? And, you know, before I became, I, before I came to Chicago, um, I was sort of still trying to figure it out in, in Virginia, and I was working at my parents' um, home health care business. Um, I mean, I was run, helping run some of the business in some ways and learning some things, um, but for the most part, I was sort of like in the family business, and I learned so much, but I knew it wasn't the work that I wanted to be doing long term. 
Um, and so I think my parents, they were hoping for that either, you know, either in, in going into the home care business or something in healthcare and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, and so even when I came to Chicago, I was still trying to figure out what it even meant to be an organizer. And I worked in social service and program and like different programs for a while. Um, and it led me to, um, you know, becoming a paid organizer, but I was doing organizing work or figuring that out um, as I as I came here. And so they were, you know, I think they were trying to figure out what I was doing and we're like, what are you doing? And, um, you know, I think there was a moment where I started getting recognition for the work that I was doing and organizing. And um, I used to work for this, um, or I was a leader member of this uh, uh, racial and economic justice organization um, called Seoul Chicago. And I won this award and my mom came to um, witness me getting this award. And I think getting accolades like this is like, it, it's like, you know, they understand that. <laughs> They're like, yes. okay. They want, the I'm pretty sure they want to have something to show off to their right. friends. And <laughs> so I think at that moment where my, my mom, she was meeting people in the community who I worked with and organized with alongside, um, she saw that I really was, this, this was sort of my calling and my work. And I remember when I got that award, she was crying and I was like, oh, mom, like, wow, you're so, you're like really proud of me. Wow, thanks, this is like powerful. And then she, I was just like, but um, she was just like, no, I'm just crying because I realized you're never coming back to Virginia. <laughs> so, I mean, I'm sure she also was, you know, very proud of me, but I, and, and I think she was, it was sort of sinking into her that like, this is, this is my community, even though Virginia, Virginia Beach, Hampton Rooms will always be my community. This was also my community. And at the time. It's I also was, the home of Missy Elliott too. Right, exactly. <laughs> Missy Elliott and Timbaland. Uh, right, right. But I, I think it's interesting how you, uh, your mom brings that up because it also shows you that Chicago is not uh, letting you go. I mean, you're <laughs> doing something very special for that community. And I think she recognizes that, that, you're doing something very important over there and it's hard to go back it's hard to turn your back once you start to develop something especially with a community community that you're bonding with and you're now fighting for it so uh i'm very curious and now like fast forward um to what's going on now and since you've been an executive director with a fire so i was wondering how the filipino community uh, Filipino OX community, especially among elders, have been coping in the wake of COVID-19. And what has that experience with the pandemic been like for the Filipino OX uh, community in Chicago? And, and also, what have AFIRE been doing in this role to look after the community during the time of crisis? So I know it's, it's, it's a three-part question, but it all centers into <laughs> the COVID-19 pandemic yeah. and how the community and itself has reacted in the wake of this mm -hmm. pandemic? Mm -hmm. Well, one thing I would say is, you know, I think we, we share this with, with our, uh, um, a lot of our communities. We are strong, we are resilient, um, and, there, and, and that doesn't mean that people aren't experiencing, you know, immense trauma and hurt. And, you know, um, I think 
uniquely for the Filipino OAX community. We, um, we have a lot of folks in our community who are essential workers when it comes to, when you think of the hospital, you're gonna think of a Filipino nurse, right? When you think right. of a caregiver or um, domestic worker, it's, it's a lot of um, people who are Filipino, um, um, mostly women, but also men too, um, and um, often are undocumented. So live, you know, this kind of, uh, intersection, all these different ways that our communities are attacked uh, because of our, many of our um, parts of our identity. And so um, I think that for us, those challenges, um, you know, have really come to the surface. And uh, for a fire, we, we really um, kind of took a step back and we're like, okay, we have to really access and build those spaces and connect with community more than ever, right? As, as we're physically, socially distancing, we were really figuring out how do we build deep, deeper relationships with community and also reach out to people who may have never been connected to a fire before. Um, and so I think, you know, just like a lot of communities, um, people were experiencing housing insecurity. Um, a lot of our communities, um, especially who were in healthcare, domestic workers, um, were contracting COVID-19, and mm -hmm. and um, you know that was coming back to our families, um, our families, and especially people who were who were elders. Which we um, something that is really special about a fire is that we organize an intergenerational um, community. Um, and so <laughs> that comes with a lot of, um, you know, looking at all the different uh, aspects that people are, how people are impacted. Um, and so I think for us, we, we did a lot of work to identify those issues and then um, also did the work of trying to gather those resources um, in, either to, in, in order to um, meet those needs. And, and, and thank goodness we had, we had some existing really powerful um, affiliations and partnerships with organizations like, um, with like Illinois Coalition for Immigrant Refugee Rights and mm -hmm. um, PAVE, uh, the Pan-Asian Voter Empowerment Coalition um, and the National Domestic Workers Alliance who um, through those relationships and many of our other relationships, we were able to identify emergency funding, um, PPE, um, protective equipment, personal protective equipment, um, you know, lists of where to get food, um, you know, other, other materials that people need. Um, and so not only getting those, uh, getting those resources or supplies, we, we really focused on how do we heal and connect in community because people did feel really isolated, especially for a lot of our seniors or people who lost jobs or who were living on their own. Um, and so doing a lot of that um, community building and healing, we, um, you know, I've, I've never trained so many people how to use Zoom in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I used to do national organizing with um, with NAPOF, you mentioned, um, and so I, I owe it to them knowing how to utilize um, Zoom for, for many, um, for at least, um, you know, over a year I was using it to do remote organizing, um, and, and those skills really came in handy. Um, 
And then, you know, not only we were bringing people to heal and build community um, and get the resources that we need, uh, but we, but also connecting people to the, the work to change our conditions or to immediately speak out on and, and organize and advocate for the things that people needed um, in, 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 the, in the immediate time and also the things that we've always needed, right? So I mm -hmm. think for a lot of semester workers, um, you know, people were not getting paid. They were, um, you know, not getting the PPE. Uh, the same thing for a lot of the frontline healthcare workers. We're not getting, we're not, um, we're not getting the, the right equipment. We're asked, you know, being basically putting themselves in danger. Um, and then, so, you know, being able to push and fight for those things. Um, and then also, you know, we do ongoing immigrant and worker rights work where we have been pushing for a vision that is pro-worker, that's pro-immigrant, um, that's pro-refugee, right? And so working alongside other communities on, on this like long-term vision of what it looks like for our communities to not only just get the rights that we, that we need and deserve, but also how our communities can thrive. Um, and you know, I think um, that's something. You know, maybe this also connects to in the conversation that we can have, that we can, can that I'm sure that we'll get to. But um, I think it also kind of pushed us to really connect with other communities as well and seeing how our struggles are connected, um, particularly around domestic work um, is is something that um, the reason why that work has has already been work that hasn't given, been given the um, respect it, it's uh, deserved and needed is because the history of um, those, um, those jobs being, um, being occupied by uh, enslaved people, like black folks. Mm -hmm. And so um, we, I think a lot of um, the organ, we've not only been doing the organizing work, but also um, trying to build those connections and think about solidarity and um, strive to build solidarity and build those relationships with other communities as we're pushing for um, things like housing support, worker rights, immigrant rights, um, racial justice, so on and so forth. Mm. I think it's so, and thank you again for you know, giving us the work that a fire has been doing. And also I want to say a shout out to Sally Richmond, who <laughs> is such a fearless, fearless, uh, you know, former domestic uh, worker turned activist. Um, she's in her 70s and she is, she's a tiny, spiry, just <laughs> spirited person. And I, I remember she spoke about domestic workers' rights uh, several years ago and she was mm -hmm. leading the charge to bring that attention. And she gave a very impassioned speech which still gets me in tears every time I hear it. I hope to hear it again because I think it's such a powerful, speech about the work of the importance of domestic workers and also what is lacking in uh, as far as working conditions, pay, living. And I think that when we look at what the pandemic has done, the pandemic has opened up so many of the structural issues uh, that the Filipino OX API communities have been facing 
uh, when it comes to caregiving work, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to racism, mm -hmm. uh, when it comes to undocumented status. I mean, during the whole stimulus uh, payout, undocumented immigrants were not able to be supported, including those uh, that have DACA or even legal immigrants, from my understanding. So, so the Filipino ex communities had to be confronted with so many of these issues that were bubbling under the surface, but with the pandemic, it basically just uh, reared its ugly light into uh, what's been not talked about for so long. And I think it's, uh, it, it's, it is the moment of truth. It's like, what do we do as a response as a community to advocate? And you know, I think it's really amazing that you know, a fire continues to uh, work with other community organ organizations to help support those that are in need, um, that are also doing critical work for their own communities, especially for nurses, especially for caregivers who are taking care of elderly, who are providing companies to them. So uh, major kudos to that. Um, so I was curious to know what has been a fire's response and role in addressing the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, shortly after the COVID-19, we're dealing with the national unrest that's happening as we speak. Uh, and also has a fire received backlash from the community in support for Black Lives Matter movement? Yeah, thank you again for these really important questions. Um, you know, I will say even before, you know, this, uh, before this current uprising that's happening, um, I think a fire has has really been committed to having these conversations in in community about, particularly about anti-blackness. Um, and I, I really credit that to um, the the people who've been a part of the fire community, which also has always been intergenerational. And um, and so I think in this in this current moment, we, alongside other communities, have been thinking about, okay, what are, um, what are the ways that we, uh, that our communities are currently, you know, perpetuating anti-blackness? How do we have these conversations in community? Um, and, and what is the best way that we're in solidarity with uh, the movement for Black Lives in a way that is adding. Um, that is that is meaningful and not just sort of like I think I heard this like the the like organizational statement solidarity statement complex or something like that where <laughs> everybody was just sort of like saying you know they support it and it's and really like I think those like having those statements are important um but if you aren't if you know if you're an institution or a group that isn't doing anything other than putting out these statements it really is signaling just signaling right um and I, so i think for us a fire we've we've had um you know the point is is that we haven't just had like we're gonna have one workshop on this or have a community conversation on this we have many community conversations and i think um a lot of times we've try to think about um, in, in all of our work, in our current work, how, how are we bringing that framework of um, combating anti-Blackness or making sure that there is a, 
you know, thinking about structural racism um, in, in our immigration work, in our worker rights work, um, in, you know, in our healing justice work. And so, you know, we've had converse, um, we have had conversations, we have done uh, engaging community in, in culturally and, um, and also linguistically like relevant ways um, around um, what, is it, what does it mean to extend our, our values of, we call it Bayanihan, which is like our values of like community and community care to other communities and have that compassion and um, um, have that compassion um, alongside other communities. And I think something that has been really important is that we're, we have those conversations in a way where we're drawing from history. Um, so it is really important to know the history of black people in this country and how does that connect or relate to um, uh, for in, in, the, in this case, the Filipino OAX community. Uh, and then people also share their own stories of how, um, what their experiences have been um, alongside other Black communities. Um, and then I think the other piece is, um, what are the values that we have? Um, and I, I guess I was kind of talking about this earlier. What are the values that we have and how do we apply that when we think about our own um, journey and fight for, for justice and dignity for our community, what does that look like for the Black community for, um, in, and obviously there are Black Filipinos too, um, mm -hmm. and so, you know, kind of thinking about um, the way that anti-Blackness or colorism has played out in, in, in our community, um, and so, you know, I think for us, it's, yeah, it's been for, um, important to have those conversations in a way where, yeah, we're recognizing history, we're thinking about our own experiences, and and also thinking about what are the the values that we have, where even if we can't find those, even if there wasn't any connections in um, in our history with with Black mm -hmm. folks, which there are, there's so many, um, but even if we didn't have that, you know, historical connection, what are the values that we say, hey, like. Uh, Black people who are being over, um, you know, over policed, are being um, over surveilled, so on and so forth. Um, what um, is that? Is that um, you know, like dignity and um, for the for for Black people? And and so if we have a value of wanting dignity for all people, um, how how can we be in solidarity with other communities as well? Um, not just not just only because. Um, black folks also really have kicked down the door for a lot of communities, um, for a lot of immigrant communities um, in, a, in a lot of different ways and really um, paved the way for our role in, in, um, uh, in, in like the move in, in for, uh, for people who are um, uh, pushing for civil rights. And so hopefully that's making sense. Um, it does. I'm trying to make, I guess I've learned through this process and like, you know, um, how to have these conversations, and I think it's an ongoing conversation. What does it mean to be an ally versus being um, a an accomplice or being um, in in um, solidarity with, with mm. other communities? Which also kind of like begs me to ask, also like, how do we confront Trumpism in our own communities? Because we're having all these conversations 
and this is something that's been that's not new to the API community where we have our family members who harbor a lot of right-wing views, anti-communist, anti-socialist views because of the historical nature of what had happened years ago in their upbringing. But I know that your father is a Trump supporter, but you have had to deal with your relationship and how do you reconcile the fact that yes, he is your father, but at the same time, this is a person who is also misguided, misinformed, and you see holes in his arguments, and you see a lot of holes in uh, the community, especially among elders and even young folks who carry anti-Blackness, who carry a lot of uh, fill-in-the-blank phobia. Um, and how do you have these conversations with community members who are, uh, who are people you're fighting for, but at the same time telling them, look, this is not the way to go about it. And obviously we can't change everyone's minds, but we, there's still the struggle that given this movement, given the fact that the API's relationship with black and brown communities have been a long struggle mm -hmm. and black and brown communities, Latinx, indigenous, and Black communities have long distrusted API folks because of uh, the part of history that we're still struggling with. So, and even in our own communities, we're still struggling with that, as you just mentioned, within our own communities because of the historical nature of it and, and um, the colorism issues. So I was wondering, how do you have these conversations with people in our community to try to help them unpacked a lot of their grievances that they've had in their right-wing views and the, and, the, and, and the way that they've had to shape their, in the way that their, their views have shaped up their um, view of the world. Yeah, I think, ooh, I've learned, I feel like I'm still learning and I've learned a lot throughout the years. Um, and, you know, just go back to that piece around people, um, we really try to draw from history and people's experiences and stories and breaking those down. And then also just kind of like being rooted in our values. What are the values? And so if we can, if I can have a conversation with uh, people who I don't um, agree with in my own community, whether, whether it's elders or people my own age, um, if we can try to find some um, basis of like, what are our shared values? Um, it really does help set the stage for um, how we can have a conversation that is rooted in compassion and love um, uh, for our communities. Uh, whether it's around immigration, where a lot of people believe, you know, believe that you have to have come to this country, quote unquote, the right way. And so if we, but we, if we as a community have a value of family being important and being with our family is important, um, you know, whatever that means, people taking a risk to be with their family, um, that is, that's the conversation that I feel like I've ended up having with, with, with my father and, and other people, knowing that um, all of our families had, you know, figured out, took a risk to be with our families. And so sometimes that means we're criminalized by the state, <laughs> trying to be with our families, trying to have mm -hmm. dignity in our lives. And I think that's similar to um, 
what's happening with this uprising where people are have a, um, a righteous rage, right? And I think um, some of the conversations that I've been hearing in community led by not only young people, but also elders who, um, especially elders, Filipino OAX elders who um, were present during the mar uh, martial law in the Philippines, under um, understand in, in many different ways what it means to uh, have a government or um, that is, um, you know, abusing its power, abusing its own people with, with, um, without any accountability, right? And that's violence that's sanctioned by the state. And, you know, we're seeing that now with this junk um, terror bill in the Philippines where people are being um, criminalized for uh, specifically speaking out against injustices and for activism um, in, in the Philippines. And so um, I think because of people's experience with that, um, some people have been able to connect that experience with what's, what's happening in the US where police um, or any law enforcement um, is abusing its power and um, basically um, you know, executing state-sanctioned violence or surveillance um, on its own people and not being held accountable. Um, and so I think, you know, not only how we've been having conversations that draw connections with our own values and our history and our stories, um, but I think also trying to look at um, this, look at um, what are some of the ways that we have to reimagine community? Um, and so I think it's been really, this has been the moment, especially, where we've been able to really push the conversation around police and prison abolition um, uh, with, within community in, in maybe ways that you know, weren't as um, uh, available in, in past years where, because there is this national conversation and movement in abolition and rethinking what does it mean to have justice and um, recognizing that um, the police or prisons are, are um, not, um, not tools of justice and not um, doing the things that um, we've been conditioned to think that they're supposed to do. Um, and so I think how we've also talked about that in a fire um, has been from this place of, okay, what is it? Um, and really drawing from a lot of the work of people who've done abolition work, right? Like Miriam Kaba and a lot of people in Chicago um, who probably have been <laughs> engaged by Miriam Kaba, but um, the conversation about what does it look like to have a safe community? What does safety mean to you? And so I think when we've been able to draw those connections of the work that we already do as a fire, we, uh, the immigrant rights work that we do, um, you know, we strive to build safe and thriving um, communities um, for us as immigrants. Um, so for the domestic work, we know that if people have health, um, healthy and safe and, um, you know, just uh, workplaces that have dignity, we're creating the conditions for safety um, and, um, and healthy and strong communities where um, people um, 
where there will be less violence, where there'll be um, less um, quote unquote crime. Um, and so I think we've been trying to make those connections of what does it mean to push for abolition. Abolition isn't um, just the absence of police or prisons. It is creating something new and creating um, you know, innovative and interesting ways to support um, community, to um, heal community. Um, and so I think that's been a really incredible and important conversation to have and have um, with uh, our families and, um, and elders and young people about rethinking some of these systems that, we on, that we've only known our whole lives. Um, and so, yeah, that has been, um, that has been incredible. And I'm, I'm really excited to, to, to continue to have those conversations and see how we can, um, how those conversations can grow into more actions. Um, you know, not only having these conversations, but we have been active in supporting the demands of, of the movement Black for Black Lives around defunding the police. And um, in the city of Chicago, um, there's been a lot of work around um, uh, divesting in the police and, and getting police out of schools um, and um, academic institutions. Um, and you know, diverting those funds into things that actually do keep us safe and make our communities um, thrive. Yeah, uh, I think it's hard to imagine now, like since uh, the civil unrest for the past month or so, that the word defund cops is now a national tagline. The word police abolition. I mean, a couple of years ago, even a year ago, um, I was struggling in, in thinking of, will this ever, be a reality? Would this be a conversation that could be normalized? But you know, you look at all these movements, whether it's um, with the undocumented dream movement, you look at the Black Lives Matter movement, it took years to grow. And you see where all these conversations, as you just pointed out, are so critical into making people think about their own personal experiences, making these connections. Because in my own experiences, like I have family members who are Trump supporters in Florida, mm -hmm. of all places. And as much as I love them, I've had such a hard time with my relationship with them that I've had to, um, I hate to say the word disown, but I've had to walk away from my relationships because it was too toxic for me. But at the same time, there's this guilt that, I'm, that I still have that maybe I didn't try hard enough, maybe I took the wrong approach, maybe I lost my temper, maybe I just gave up. They got kids that I feel like I could have been a better influence for. So I think that a lot of us in the community and even people like myself, and I know I'm not the only one that has said this, but we feel brave talking in social media, we feel brave talking in front of a reporter, we feel brave talking in community spaces, but when it comes to our family members, we struggle. We struggle the most at having these personal conversations where it could matter. And I look at what's going on with George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmed Arbery, and Elijah McClain, among the many, many Black folks that were murdered under police brutality. Um, why did it take so long for us to get to that conversation? Why did it take for us to start 
all of a sudden having these critical conversations with their family members when this could have been done during Trayvon Martin or during uh, Philando Castile, Sandra Bland. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, this is work that's been done before, but it just seems to grow exponentially uh, very recently. So what do you think is attributed to this change all of a sudden? Or this, I don't know if this change is going to turn into something more permanent down the road, but it seems like this is a movement that feels very different than what we've seen back in 2016 or 2017 during Charlottesville or 2013, 1992 and so forth. So what makes it feel different this time around? Uh, why do you think people are all of a sudden starting to turn that corner, even in our own community? What do you think is attributed to that? Yeah, and, you know, and I, I will say and, and credit that there have been people in and, and, and nowhere near to scale where we need to be having these conversations and organizing people, but there have been people um, in, in the AAPI community who have been organizing and, and working in solidarity and um, with, uh, um, with, with black folks and other communities who have been um, you know, experiencing over-policing and surveillance and so on and so forth. Um, I think, you know, we're at this moment, we, we saw this, Inter international uprising. So, you know, this this organizing isn't just happening in, in the United States, it's happening in many other countries. And I think also, um, you know, I think added the piece of being a part of a global pandemic, um, it's really coming to surface how um, our communities have been experiencing all of the different um, uh, ways that our communities have been attacked and the ways that Black communities have been attacked, um, I think it's it's really just uh, surfaced and crystallized so so much more clearly than it has ever. Um, and and also I think um, because you know these uh, it, the ways that uh, people are just really tired and have this righteous rage. There's been incredible um, strategic organizing and um, and also, um, you know, just a movement of people, uh, particularly Black folks who have um, just just risen up and and really just um, made it so that people had to listen. <laughs> And that it's it's out front, and I think you know some of the conversations that have happened around um, oh, like people are um, looting and people are um, you know stealing things and um, being violent. It's particularly yeah, it's particularly sensitive to API folks, especially with that topic because right, right. because a lot of businesses are also owned by API folks too. Right. And when their businesses get loot, mm -hmm. get looted or uh, vandalized, then like we saw with the 1992 LA riots, mm -hmm. there, the love of anti-blackness seems to just be very strong yeah. after these circumstances. And, and also what people also conveniently forget is that police allowed it mm -hmm. to happen. They were bystanders. They just allowed it to allow these businesses to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. as we have seen in many circumstances, given what happened uh, with the most recent unrest. So yeah, 
I didn't mean to interrupt there, but yeah, but that was really something to point out too. When you hear the looting, it's a very sensitive topic for our own API community, and it seems to be the barrier of the conversations that we're trying to have on Black Lives Matter movement. So I was curious, like, what uh, allowed you to have, or what allows, or what would be the better way to, uh, to approach that particular subject when it comes to looting and protesting? Uh, yeah, and, and, and I won't, this is not something I'm leading on my own, and I won't even say that a fire is only the only one leading these conversations in our community. Um, uh, there, there are people who have, um, again, people, uh, Filipino elders and young people too, who have led these conversations among among our community, where we, knowing the historical context is critical in in um, making sure that we we have an analysis and um, can have compassion in terms of why there is this righteous rage. Um, and so some of the conversations that I've been a part of and also witnessed have, um, you know, have cited the, you know, not only um, Black people being enslaved, um, and then what are the long-term impacts of that in terms of, even though uh, a lot of people are like, oh, well, that was a, you know, a long time ago or whatever, but the impact of communities um, not having access to um, generational wealth you know, it'll show up today um, and not having access um, to uh, whether that's, that's planned, right? And so I think recognizing the, the different ways that communities have been locked out of um, those, um, uh, that um, being able to have those resources or that wealth um, has a, an ongoing impact um, and also recognizing that people have been, um, were enslaved, you know, and mm. so um, how has that impacted people's um, experience and perspective, um, particularly Black folks? Um, so I think, you know, I've heard elders talk, um, and one of the conversations was someone who was an Asian business owner, um, and he talked about his, you know, his um, experiences having a a business in a black community where, um, you know, he was robbed and there, you know, there was, um, um, his, his store was vandalized. And I think it was really inspiring to see other elders say, you know, I understand that was a hard situation, but you can't, you know, you can't base your, um, your like idea or, um, you know, idea who, you know, a whole community of people based on that experience, your, your own experience on one anecdote. Um, and that it is important to know the history and the root causes of poverty, the root causes of um, why Black people have been, um, um, communities have been again and again divested in, particularly in Chicago, um, in Chicagoland. Um, and so I think that was, um, that's how a lot of these conversations have been going. And I think the piece around um, the judgment, the judgment of how people have been showing their rage, um, it's been really inspiring to see some of these elders say, okay, who are we to judge how people show their rage when there hasn't, there isn't justice um, for the 
state-sanctioned murders of people. How would you feel <laughs> if someone, um, you know, if the government was murdering people in our communities on their identity and there was never any accountability? Um, and so, you know, um, I think that's something where when I've talked to, whether it's someone who is a, a progressive, a Trump supporter, whoever, um, try to have those conversation about um, how are we, how are we um, again, drawing from history and also um, really thinking about compassion um, and understanding um, how people must feel if, um, you know, with, with the treatment, um, the, how the, the treatment from institutions, um, from the government, um, and particularly from police. Um, mm. the police. Um, and so I think those are, those are the ways that we've been having those conversations is trying to draw from, um, yeah, again, mm. I, I feel like I'm saying the same thing over and over. No. <laughs> but, yeah, no. History and, and um, also um, having compassion and connecting it with our values. Yeah, and also like one of the big plan of actions right now for a fire and for the Filipino X community is getting people registered to vote. And also we have a, a, like a little over half a year into 2020 right now. We got about several months before the election and the Filipino X community is also along with the API community as a whole is an important voting block. Um, and right now with the pandemic that's been continuing and starting to surge in many states, uh, there's a lot of concern about how this impacts uh, minority voters, uh, especially among elders, especially the fact that in certain states, uh, mail-in ballots are restricted and there's levels of voter suppression that the Republicans have been doing to minimize mail-in balloting. But I'm very curious to know what uh, has your work been like? I know Illinois is a lot easier when it comes to mail-in ballot versus other states, but I'm, I'm curious to know um, how have you been working to register new voters, but at the same time making sure that uh, current voters understand their voting rights, especially right now as we're trying to, as as I think it's so important right now for folks to understand what's happening and how to register to make sure that they get their mail-in ballots on time. Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you. Um, so I think I'll, I'll preface too with, um, for a fire, we've always had a commitment to bringing people to action and voting has been one of those ways um, it isn't the only way, <laughs> and we know that not all of our community can vote, um, but it is um, definitely um, one of the tactics that we can take action in order to, to um, you know, change, um, make change. Um, and so for us, we, we definitely want to prioritize um, safety for our communities, and so we definitely support and are committed to pushing um, the fight to make sure that people have access to mail-in ballots. Um, and so I think that will definitely impact our strategy um, on how we move people to make sure that they go and, um, you know, voice their vote um, at, um, this during this general election. Um, 
And so I think when we, even, even this last primary election, it was when sort of, it was early, it was kind of the early moments of the pandemic, um, at least mm -hmm. for us um, in the States. And um, I think the way that we were looking at it, we know that it's life or that for folks, it felt like life or death to mm. go because of being putting yourself in danger, right? Um, of, of physically, you know, going to a polling place, but also it also feels like life or death to um, for a lot of people if they don't go vote, right? If um, so, you know, for me, I I wouldn't judge anybody for um, at least in this moment to, to not go vote or to, or if they did want to go vote. Um, I think that it makes sense um, that we should encourage our communities to take action. And one of those ways is, is voting. And um, we're going to make sure that um, we, uh, for those who, um, who want to express their voice through voting, we're going to make sure they can have the, the tools and access um, and, and education and awareness to do that. Mm. So what advice can you give to someone who is looking to get involved in community organizing? And especially since we have plenty of time before we get to the election. But yes, I, I know that you do work with a lot of younger folks who are just starting to get an interest in community activism, uh, especially in this time of uh, the, the crisis that we're in. But what advice can you give uh, to someone who is looking to get involved? Yeah, I, I think, you know, my number, um, one of the first things I would tell someone if they were interested in, um, you know, starting to do organizing work is really just figure out um, who are your people <laughs> and build, that means building relationships with folks in community um, and, you know, in, and eventually hopefully finding the place where it will be your political home. Um, and, and so, um, I think for, um, for me, when I first came to Chicago, I kind of hopped around and jumped around and met so many people. And in the end, I built all these really, um, beautiful and inspiring and strong, um, personal and, you know, um, relationships with people who were part of the movement. And that was, I think, really foundational to have a, um, you know, just have a baseline of um, doing the organizing work. Because if you're gonna um, take action, you wanna build those strong relationships because if you don't have that community, you don't have that collective trust, um, how are you gonna take those um, collective actions to uh, take those risks in order to um, you know, stand up against whatever, um, whatever we're trying to stand up against, whether it's what's happening with the attack on undocumented people in this country or international students. Um, we, you know, sometimes those things happen really quickly, right? Because people get really clear on who, um, who's being, um, who's being attacked and how we're connected to that, um, whatever the, the issue is. Um, but I think that that is the ongoing work to build deep relationships and um, and then figure out what is, um, you know, where is your place in the in the movement? 
Um, and where is um, where is your political home, whether it's um, you know I two I, or if it's with a fire or with Hana Center, um, and and then in what way? Um, I really love um, Deepa Ayer's uh, the the like ecosystem um, roles in the movement um, diagram that she made, um, which kind of lays out all the different ways that. Um, people can participate and contribute to a movement. Um, some of them are uh, people who are disruptors, people who like see the issue or the oppression or the problem and like kind of disrupt and stop <laughs> something. Yeah. Say, hey, this is shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, or um, or the people who are the healers or the um, you know see the trauma that's happening and. Um, show up for people in our community who need that healing. Um, the people who are storytellers, who are, um, you know, kind of uh, lifting up what are the stories from our community to talk about um, what are their struggles, um, who, which are often unseen. And particularly for API folks where we do get lumped into this one category and it erases all the different, um, you know, the breadth of struggles and um, compl like complicated histories of many different API communities. Um, and so I think um, also storytellers are really important to be able to really lift up um, and, and um, uh, really illustrate what, what, our, um, what our struggles are and our, um, the historical context as well. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know we have like several months of 2020 left. And what do you feel most hopeful about coming out of this very turbulent year? Yeah, I I think you know we're for us and not only I'm not only just thinking about the work of a fire, um, but the work that we're doing as a movement where it's a census year, <laughs> it's a election year, and so knowing that it's um, it's a moment where we can, uh, we're still dealing with this pandemic and up and this national con conversation and uprising, um, international uprising, I would say, actually. Um, and so I'm really hopeful that, you know, we, we can utilize these moments to um, lift up the, the changes that need to happen in our community and building a new vision and really turning um, things kind of upside down in a different way where we might have to reimagine um, we have or we do have to reimagine what it means to have um, uh, safety and justice in in, um, in our communities and I'm really inspired by what happened in um, in uh, Minnesota where um, they they did disband the police um, and, and you're seeing that pop up in different parts of the country, whether it's on the school level or on the city, on the city level as well. So I'm really encouraged by um, and inspired by the, the work that people have been doing long term, you know, for many, many years to get to this point. And um, we still have a lot of work to do in order to, um, you know, abolish a lot of these systems that need to be abolished. ICE, police. Um, you know, uh, prisons, so on and so forth. Um, and so I think there, there's the work ahead of us, but people really have just done this incredible and 
um, inspiring job of trying to paint that picture a little bit more clearly for the rest of us. And um, I really, something that I've been uh, sort of meditating and talking about in community um, is mm -hmm. I do, I, I'm only human and definitely like feel, do get um, in a slump and like really scared about what our future will look like. Um, and, you know, um, the real possibility that things can get even more worse before they get better. Um, but I do think that a part of um, this idea of abolition, a part of this idea of freedom is about being able to imagine what, um, what freedom, what abolition um, looks like. Because if, you know, I do sit in this like pessimism um, place or this like feeling like, um, you know, kind of this doomsday feeling, um, I think that that is, uh, that is a connection with white supremacy um, because it's kind of just kind of feeling stuck in the idea that things can't change and they won't. Um, but I really do believe that they will. And um, there are people who are doing that incredible work um, to, to really push us towards freedom, towards abolition. Thank you so much for this wonderful conversation that we're having. And before we start wrapping things up, where can people find a fire and uh, where can people uh, learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah, thank you. Um, you can find us um, on our website, which is www.afirechicago.org. Um, we have a really cute website. The staff is all wearing plaid. <laughs> so come find us there. <laughs> and there's um, lots of information about um, the work that we're doing, um, the campaigns and programs. And then of course, we're, we, we're also on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. Um, we don't have a TikTok yet, so <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's um, a goal for this year. You're gonna yeah. do some dances for us too, right. you know, <laughs> organizing dances. Yep, yep. <laughs> yeah, so, and yeah, you know. Please, please come visit us. We, um, and I'll mention uh, right now, our staff and community is generally working remotely, um, but we do share an office with the HANA Center um, at 4300 North California. Um, and so, you know, when um, it is safer to come together in person, we, we, you know, we welcome folks to come visit us. Oh, that's amazing. And, you know, I've been such a fan of what a fire has been doing for the past several years when Jerry Corito was running uh, the place and just just seeing how committed and beautiful the work that you've been doing and how and how much inspiration that you take even from a small group of people just to use your voices and be loud and unapologetic about it. I think that's the beauty of the API movements is that we are breaking the stereotypes of our silence and our fears and channeling into we're fed up we can change we can change this narrative of what america can look like and reimagining i think like gracie boggs said it best like imagination is even more important than education mm. and i think that was something that really stood out for me is when you talk about imagination reimagining just having the vision of what we want our society to look like, what our community should look like. And going back to your high school teacher that was talking about honoring and celebrating 
uh, both of your, uh, celebrating your culture, these are ways where we can start to imagine what it would look like if we had these conversations and if we start talking about it and honoring ourselves and what that could look like for us. So I really thank you so much for this amazing conversation. It's been so good to see your growth and the, the evolving changes that you've gone through because of the movements that you've been a part of and now seeing you being an executive director in this role, even though I know it's a very thankless job every day, but just to see that you are a person that people in the community look up to in Chicago. And I'm so proud of what you've been doing and I wish you nothing but the best in that journey and, and helping to uh, dismantle and rebuild uh, the systems that have harmed all of our communities. Wow, thank you so much. <laughs> I really just love and and respect you so much. And I just, yeah, this I'm really grateful for this conversation because um, it's very personal. We, um, you know, doing being being friends and working in community. Um, it's a very uh, there's not a um, you know you don't always have those types of relationships where. Uh, you worked alongside people and then also just seeing each other grow throughout the years. And so um, I really feel similarly where I'm, I'm really, really excited to see you um, really come into this role. I mean, I feel like there's a lot of things, but uh, it's, I feel like you're a, you're a storyteller, quite literally. Um, and, and, and also, um, you know, maybe a disruptor too. I don't know. I feel like, and building your builder as well, building a lot of, building something um, for people to just um, not only get the education on what work is happening, but also reimagine and really in the legacy of Grace Lee Bob. So yeah. thank you so much for your work um, uh, in, in um, building this podcast. So yeah. Thank you so much. Well, that is all for today. Thank you for listening. And be on the lookout for future episodes. So follow me on The Bunby Chronicles on Facebook. Or you can follow me on Instagram at bunby underscore chronicles. Thank you again and looking forward to sharing more with you.